Hi, and welcome back for another Toasted Tale with me, Jim. I'm really happy you decided to join me today around the fireside. If, like me, you enjoy hearing stories, then you've come to the right place. I think there are interesting stories in every subject, just waiting to be found and shared. In this podcast, we're going to take a random subject and use it as a seed to do some research, and in that time I'll do my best to find a story within that hopefully I and you will find enjoyable. So let's bring in the subject randomizer, give it a spin, and find out what today's topic will be. Alright, so today it's landed on Lloyd Pepper Bassett. Now before today, I hadn't even heard of Lloyd, or for that matter, known about anything he's done. I know that he was a baseball player, who played in America many decades ago. Learning a bit more about this man's life and career therefore should be pretty interesting. And I look forward to what you and I will learn throughout this episode. Now, so as not to keep you all waiting around, I've already completed the research for Lloyd Pepper Bassett, and I'm really excited to share with you the stories I found surrounding this man. Now, just for a disclaimer, Lloyd Pepper Bassett was playing baseball in the 1940s and 50s. Back then, especially in America, there was a lot more unenlightened thinking about race and people of different ethnic backgrounds. Now, Lloyd's story interjects this conflict, and in this episode of the Toasted Tale podcast, there will be some subjects that touch on race, the challenges certain peoples had to go through at that time, and we'll also mention certain organisations which have names that, to our modern ears, may make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. My intention is to cover this subject with the respect and attention it deserves, because underneath there is some really interesting stories. Out of conflicts like this, the greatest tales can emerge. And just remember that a lot of what you're about to hear is very time appropriate to when it was happening, and the opinions of people back then were very different to our own now. Anyway, now that's out of the way, Let's get to today's story. So, baseball. It's known as America's beloved national pastime, and has a few different origins that come from different areas, some of which are true and others false. Legend has it that a young man from a prominent family in upstate New York in the summer of 1839 invented the game. In this story, the man named Abner Doubleday probably would have been in between his early military training at West Point, as later he would go on to fight and become a military major general for the Union forces during the Civil War, and in turn becoming a national hero in the process. Now, the idea of a national war hero inventing America's beloved national pastime is about as American as apple pie, and is a fitting story for the origin of the sport. And this is probably why it persuaded business leaders, sports writers, and officials in the 1930s to settle on it. 
Unfortunately, and contrary to these tales, baseball has a different origin. Baseball turns out to be a love child of two English games. Rounders, a popular children's game brought to New England by the early colonists, and cricket. By the time of the American Revolution, variations of both sports were played in schoolyards and college campuses across the country. Popularity for these games peaked in newly industrialized cities, where men sought work in the mid-19th century. In September 1845, a group of New York City men founded the New York Knickerbocker Baseball Club. One of them, a volunteer fireman and bank clerk, Alexander Joy Cartwright, would codify a new set of rules that would form the basis of modern baseball, calling for a diamond-shaped infield, foul lines, and a free-strike rule. Cartwright's changes made the burgeoning pastime faster-paced and more challenging while clearly differentiating it from the older games like cricket. In 1846, the Knickerbockers played their first official game of baseball against a team of cricket players, beginning a new, uniquely American tradition. There are instances of segregation and discrimination in all countries at some point, and the United States of America is no different. Whilst early on, people of different coloured skins were allowed to play together in baseball games and African-Americans were allowed to play in the minor and major leagues, with examples of Bud Fowler becoming the first African-American to play professionally in the minor leagues beginning in 1878, where he played as a pitcher, catcher, and second baseman. Another example is Moses Fleetwood Walker in 1884, who was the first to play in the major leagues, when his team, the Toledo Blue Stockings, joined the American Association, which would later merge to become the National League. Around 1887, things started to change, however. Similar to Jim Crow laws that were being adopted by some American states, owners of major and minor league teams met and adopted a secretive gentleman's agreement that no new contracts would be given to black ballplayers. This was no official ruling, but rather an insidious reaction to the times where tensions between Americans of different ethnicities were peaking, and the reaction to these created strong lines which were being drawn all across the country and society. This was no hard segregation either, no official law was passed. At the time, it would have more probably felt like a slow bleeding out of black players from the sport over a number of years. Now, from a modern standpoint, this whole approach feels very uncomfortable. But we have to remember that it was a very different time, and people back then held vastly different viewpoints from our own. The owners of the different baseball teams may have legitimately felt that white audiences coming to watch their teams would not want to watch African-American players on the field. They say that money talks, and it may have taken a very brave individual before his time to go against the racially charged direction the league was heading in and risk alienation and financial ruin. Things settled like this for around 20 years 
until between 1916 and 1919, two big events happened simultaneously. The First World War ended, and the Great African-American Migration occurred. Firstly, what is now known as the Great Migration began around this time, and over the next half century saw more than six million African-Americans from the rural South move to cities in the North, Midwest, and West. Between the years of 1916 and 1919, Half a million African-Americans were drawn away from their homes by unsatisfactory economic opportunities and harsh segregationist laws. Many black Americans headed north, where they took advantage of the need for industrial workers that arose during the First World War. When in November 1918, the First World War ended, it meant the return of boatloads of American men, coming back to their homes and to be integrated into civilian life. An estimated three million soldiers had to be discharged following the end of the conflict, and those men were understandably looking to enjoy some of the best the USA had to offer following their harrowing wartime experiences. One of these such experiences would of course turn out to be the sport baseball. These two events contributed to Rube Foster the owner of an independent, all-black baseball team, the Chicago American Giants, to take a chance and change the landscape of baseball completely. In 1920, Rube felt the time was right, and there was a market to found what was called the Negro National League, which would be made up of all African American teams, and would use the greater fan bases in the northern cities following the Great Migration and the return of the troops to support the League. Other similar leagues sprouted up following Rube Foster, and they all grew in popularity, as indeed the whole industry did throughout the 1920s, 30s and 40s. It was in this new League setup that the star of today's toasted tale comes in. Lloyd Pepper Bassett was born on August the 5th, 1910, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to Cortez Bassett and Lily Hatter. Little information about his parents is available, but it appears to have been important to them that their son get an education, as Bassett attended Reddy Street Elementary School, and later graduated from McKinley High School. Along the way, however, baseball got in the young Bassett's blood. As was the case with so many youths at the time, he honed his skills by playing ball on the local sandlots after school. The details of Bassett's early life have been lost to history, but he became a professional ball player at the age of 23 when he joined the New Orleans Crescent Stars in 1934. Though his career started slowly, he quickly started performing well in the teams he played for. From New Orleans, he moved to the Philadelphia Stars for a year, then to the Homestead Grays for another, where whilst travelling around Texas with the team, standing at six foot three and weighing 220 pounds, he gathered the nickname as the Burley Bassett. Though his playing time was sparse for Bassett that season, he made the most of his opportunities. The press were complimentary, with one article asserting, quote, 
Pepper Bassett is the big league sensation behind the plate. He has become one of the best catchers in the game today. End quote. In March 1937, Bassett was one piece of a major trade between the Greys and their crosstown rivals, the Pittsburgh Crawfords. The owner of the Crawfords, Gus Greenlee, was running low on money and could no longer support the team of stars he had on his roster. He began unloading players, leading to him trading future Hall of Famer Josh Gibson and William Judy Johnson to the Greys in exchange for Bassett, Henry Littlesplo Spearman and, in addition, $2,500, which was reportedly the largest sum involved in a player deal in black baseball to date. Though only a serviceable batter, Lloyd more than made up for it with his exceptional catching ability, with his performances earning him a starting spot in that year's East-West All-Star Game, with him being the lead vote-getter among catchers. The Pittsburgh Courier was effusive about his defensive performance, stating, quote, Practically sitting on his heels, he swayed as he snatched the fast and slow ones as they came skipping across the plate, and then tossed them back without shifting his position, end quote. Over the next three years, he did a year at the Chicago American Giants, where he again excelled in his catching and defensive work, before moving, like a number of players at the time were doing, to the Mexican League in 1940 to play for the Mexican baseball team Nuevo Laredo Tecolates, and then back to Chicago for another year. Following this, he played for the Cincinnati Clowns for two years, and then at the Birmingham Black Barons for a further six years. Lloyd Pepper Bassett wasn't only a top-level player, but also a showman. He knew how to draw in the crowds. Early as a young player, he suggested pulling a stunt on the pitch to the team owner in order to catch people's attention. With the New Orleans owner's agreement, and to the crowd's surprise, during the game, Pepper took a seat in a comfortable-looking rocking chair on the pitch where he would catch the speeding ball during play. The audience loved it, and it drew in larger and larger crowds. Everyone wanted to see the rocking chair catcher. As Bassett later said, quote, I had to figure out a way to put some people in the park, end quote. Bassett caught only occasional games from his rocker, but the gimmick worked, and he continued to use it throughout his career after moving on from New Orleans. Additionally, he was allowed to show off more of his flair when playing for the Cincinnati Clowns, a team with a name and a show business flair that seemed suited to his personality. Fellow catcher James Dudley, who played for the Baltimore Elite Giants, later remembered, quote, that guy Bassett lay down in the dirt like a little playing child. He'd tell the pitcher, throw hard, because you can't throw bad. It didn't make no difference where the ball went in that dirt. He got it. End quote. James Dudley's reminiscences about Bassett's catching acumen was an example of how well the rocking chair catcher had developed that aspect of his game. In fact, Bassett's focus on defense led to his contribution to the history of baseball equipment. 
According to the Negro League historian Don Rogazin, quote, Bassett found that the 1930s style catcher's mitt, with its pillow-like design, was unsatisfactory, particularly when a quick release was needed to get the runners stealing second. Experimenting, he gradually removed more and more of the padding, toughening up his hand in the process. Unknown to history, he helped create the squeezer style of catcher's mitt. End quote. Although Bassett used a fun bit of showmanship throughout his playing days, he was far more than a mere sideshow. He was a premier backstop who was voted into eight East-West All-Star games in seven different seasons. He was also made All-Star seven times. The Negro League umpire Bob Motley extolled the catcher's abilities. Quote, a switch-hitting slugger. Bassett had an arm like a rifle, and would sometimes mow down base dealers while sitting at the edge of the rocker. Most times, however, he would leap up from the chair and fire a bullet down to second, or pick off a runner loafing at first. If there was going to be a play at the plate, Bassett would kick that rocker out the way so fast you'd think he was kicking poo off his shoe. He'd quickly position himself to make the play. Bassett was really an outstanding catcher, truly one of the best in the league. If times had been different, there's no doubt in my mind that he would have found his way up to the majors." End quote. The paradox that the Negro Leagues had to exist due to segregation, but were nonetheless often popular even with racially unenlightened white fans, is perhaps best summed up in the words of one white Texan who asserted about Bassett, quote, I don't care if I was the only white man in the stands, I was going to see that man in the rocking chair. End quote. It feels like Lloyd Bassett was born slightly at the wrong time. After the Second World War, there was increasing pressure to reintegrate the leagues so players of different ethnicities could be in the same teams. Between 1940 and 1946, the colour line between leagues was broken down. The racial intolerances, economic and other complex factors that contributed to segregation in baseball were challenged, and chances were taken by big major league clubs in signing black players to their majority white teams. Branch Rickley of the Brooklyn Dodgers was the first to approach a young Jackie Robinson in 1945 and then in 1947, where he would be the first black player to put on the Dodgers uniform and cross that colour line. It's important as well to remember the type of time this was. This was before, by presidential order in 1948, the armed forces was desegregated, and also before, in 1954, when the Supreme Court forbid segregation in public schools. In some ways, the desegregation of baseball was a forerunner to the desegregation of society in America. Bassett's playing peak was before this time, unfortunately, and while he was still playing when the league started to rejoin, he was never picked up by any minor or major clubs, and wasn't able to make the transition. In 1944, he also suffered a heartbreaking accident when his team at the time, Birmingham Black Barons, 
We're heading to the Negro League World Series that year, and Bassett and at least three other Black Barons, including Tommy Sampson, John Britton, and Leandy Young, were involved in a car accident in which a drunk driver hit their vehicle head-on. Sampson, who had been driving and who had suffered the worst injuries, recalled, quote, I got hurt the week before the 1944 World Series. I think we had played in Louisville, I believe, and we were on our way to Birmingham when we had the accident. I was out till that next spring. I was in the hospital, I think almost 13 weeks. I had a broken leg, head busted, and everything." End quote. Bassett did play some of his best baseball while in Birmingham, and became one of the grizzled veterans at the club. After eventually leaving, he did continue playing at different clubs around North America. In 1953, and at the age of 43, Bassett's career was clearly nearing its end. He had one last hurrah as a player when he took part in his eighth All-Star game as the starting catcher for the West team. In the game, which was played at Kominsky Park on August the 16th, Bassett went 0 for 3 in the West's 5-1 triumph over the East. Bassett's final season was spent with the Detroit Stars in 1954. Though the career of Lloyd Pepper Bassett is quite well documented, his personal life is not. We know that he married Zdina Johnson in April of 1941, but the couple had no children. After retiring from playing professional baseball, he ended up moving to California, where he worked as a janitor until his death on the 28th of December, 1980. Whilst there is still a lot of his life that is shrouded in mystery, and though Bassett is now gone, the legend of the rocking chair catcher continues to live on in baseball lore. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today around the fireside. I really enjoyed learning a bit more about Lloyd Pepper Bassett, the history of baseball, and how it played a key role in first the segregation but also the desegregation of American society. It really is fascinating to me how, in less than a century, society can change so much. But it really isn't that long ago. And it's also clear to me that the ghosts of that past still have fingers clawing at today. It is therefore really important to learn about this history, I think and I feel richer in knowing it myself. If you did enjoy listening to this podcast, and you want to find yourself around the fireside again soon, then following this podcast wherever you get your podcasts will be really helpful. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook by following my handle, which is at podcasttale. It's on those two platforms where I release new episodes and also post anything that I find really interesting. So follow me at Podcast Tale for more. If you want to support the Toasted Tale podcast, you can also do so by rating the show, sharing it with your loved ones, and also commenting to let me know your thoughts. 
We release new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday, so I hope I'll be able to see you again then. Your company is always greatly welcomed. And learning about these subjects is so much better when I know we're doing it together. I hope you all have a lovely rest of day, and I will speak to you again soon for another Toasted Tale by the Fireside.